didn't realize how much I had missed just standing and singing with you, my brothers and sisters. That was a rich time. I want to say thank you to Anthony and the team. And you may have no idea who this fellow standing here in the white shirt was. That's Louis Britz, uh, a friend from South Africa. You'll hear more about them at the end of the service. But uh, let's just give a big thank you to our team that faithfully leads us to worship God and make much of Him. Thank you, guys. Thank you, team. So why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's where we are as a church. And you guys began a short series a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians. And if you're visiting or you're new, our, our normal MO is to go verse by verse. This is a little bit more of an overview in 1 Corinthians. Issues and answers. We're tackling some of the things that the church at Corinth was wrestling with to help us uh, as a local church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there. And we're going to read some verses together beginning in verse 4 in just a few minutes. But uh, for me, maybe like you, over the past few weeks, I've been very uh, somewhat concerned, somewhat very observant, just watching what's going on in our culture around us. Seems that maybe more than any time I could remember, at least, is there's more conflict and more disunity than the normal, if you will. There seems to be a, a fever pitch of conflict and disunity and those who just can't seem to get along in our culture. Police and citizens, uh, politicians with one another. I mean, it's political season and I know they're always vicious in their attacks, but man, it seems like all that's ramped up now. Just vicious attacks of one another. The immigration issue and the Refugee issue has caused us maybe even more, if we were real honest, to look with concern and maybe skepticism on those who are different ethnicity than us or maybe look a little bit different than us. I'll give you a quick example that a couple days ago this week I was working out at the gym in Johnson City where I work out and there was a fellow that was lockering in, alongside of me and I, I was looking at my locker and I heard his voice and I immediately heard a, from an Arabic background that kind of intrigued me, and as we were walking out, I, I called him in the parking lot and said, Hey, man, just curious, where are you from? He said, I'm from the United Arab Emirates. I'm from Dubai, and that strong Arabic accent, which I, I love to hear that. And I, in my heart, I said, I really would love to get to know this fellow. Ultimately, for me, I was trying to build a relationship with there in an area where I kind of hang out with this guy and ultimately share Christ with him. But I began this conversation, he was asking about me, and I was asking about him the whole time. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I bet this guy thinks I'm CIA, and I'm just trying to watch him or something. Because there's, there's tension. I can feel it. I feel like I had to say over and over, listen, I'm not, I just kind of want to get to know you, man. So there's that fever pitch, this tension that's going on in our culture politically and between Different groups and different people. I mean, there was even a movie that came out this summer. Batman and Superman can't even get along. What in the world's happening? <laughs> so to that, from 1 Corinthians, we have to ask this question. In the midst of all this disunity and in the midst of all this disharmony, does the church, and by that I mean those who are redeemed, born-again believers in Christ, does the church offer any hope? In other words, is there something about the church, believers, and the unity that is to exist within the church 
that is to be held out to a world that's very difficult to unify around anything and say, listen, there's something different here. We have the capacity to unify. And listen, the world is to look in and go, wow, how can people who are so different from different backgrounds, different skin colors, different nationalities, how can they come together and unify? To which we say there's one way, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That transforms us. The New Testament is full. If you've read through the New Testament, you hear us talk about it so much. Why is the unity of the church such a big deal in the Bible? Why was it such a big deal in the teaching of Jesus? Why did he say things like this? They'll know you by your love for one another. They'll know your true disciples of mine by the way you love one another. Why is it such a big deal? A lot of reasons. One, the way we get along, the way we love each other is to be a reflection of the character of God to the world. But another one is that the world is to be able to look in. Listen to this. Not a group that practices uniformity. You know what uniformity is? Uniformity is I'm going to all dress alike. We're all going to talk alike. We're all going to look alike. We're all going to have the same background. That's uniformity. That's what cults do. That's not the church. The church is every nation, every tribe, every tongue, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different skin colors who have distinct differences but are able to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is so transforming it is more powerful than any differences we may have. And you know what? That's the only place in culture that can say that. That's it. So the church is to be held out in a culture that will never come together and say, my, how they love each other. My, how they're so different, but yet there's something that draws them together and something that binds them together. Hence, throughout the New Testament, you hear Paul and Peter say things like, fervently love one another from the heart. You hear Paul in Ephesians 4 say, be diligent to preserve the unity of the body. Jesus said again, by this, all men will know. The world will know you're a disciple of mine. Why? How you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The unity of the church is a big deal to God. So you come to 1 Corinthians, and if you know anything about this church here, Paul's writing to a a letter to a church that was having a hard time with unity. They were rife with divisions and splits and couldn't get along. And there were things that were splitting them. And there were these little factions. And the church was not holding out a very pure, clear gospel message because they just couldn't get along. They couldn't unify. And Paul writes a letter to deal with some of these things that were causing division within the church because it was a big deal to Paul. It's a big deal to God. So you have here, we come to chapter 8, you have a particular issue in the church that that was causing division and that's where we're going to land this morning there's a particular issue in chapter 8 I'm going to kind of set it up for you a little bit I'm going to read verse 4 and then we're going to walk through chapter 8 but verse 4 introduces an issue that I want to tell you that they were wrestling with there so chapter 8 verse 4 the Bible says this Paul writing to the church at Corinth he says therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols What in the world is that all about? 
Paul says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Now we're going to walk through this passage in just a minute, but let me back up and give you a little bit of context. What in the world is this meat sacrifice to idols thing? Well, there in the church at Corinth, you have to remember there were... <laughs> Corinth was not East Tennessee Bible Belt, okay? Meaning, Paul came and brought the gospel, and those who heard the gospel, they hadn't been brought up in Bible school. They hadn't been brought up in Sunday school. They had no history of understanding the Bible or the gospel or truth. So there was these new believers that came out of pagan worship. All they knew was taking their sacrifice to the temple of Artemis in the Greek mythology or the, the Roman pantheon or whatever it was. And they would take this sacrifice and they would take it to this idol. That was their practice. That was their practice. Meat sacrifice to idols. So they came into the church with that background. That's all they knew. Their understanding had been blurred by that. And here's what would happen in the temple. Now get this. So they would bring in this sacrifice, this animal. They would lay it before this statue or whatever it was. The priest would then take that lamb or sheep or goat or whatever it was, and he would take it out back and open up a meat market and sell the meat at ridiculously half price. They, they, Walmart couldn't hold anything on this meat because it was the cheapest meat in town. Now watch this. So in the church at Corinth, you had two groups that became divided. There were a group, there was a group there that when you heard that this meat, if they invited somebody over for dinner and they put this meat out, they said, where'd you get that meat? We got it down the temple market. No way. Get that away from me. You had the non-meat eaters. Okay. Then over here, you had another group who were the meat eaters. And here's what they said. Man, it's just an idol. It's a statue. The meat doesn't matter. I'm being a good steward. I want that meat. It's the best meat in town. So come on over. We're going to have a barbecue. And you think that's a small deal, but here's the problem. They had divided in the church. So this group looked over at that group and went, what is your problem? Why don't you get over it? It's just meat. And you had this group looking over and saying, man, you are ungodly. You are unholy. You're not honoring God. And it became incredibly divisive in the church. Now, here's the heading of this issue and why it applies to you and me. I doubt any of you are going to get into an argument with one another about meat sacrificed to idols. I doubt but you are tempted, and we are tempted, to divide into the church, divide with one another over issues of Christian freedom and conscience. And that's what this was. It was a matter of personal conscience. Some had the freedom, and it didn't bother their conscience at all. Some did not have the freedom whatsoever, and it just their conscience was going off. You can't do that. You can't do that. And they were dividing in the church because they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to relate to one another. Listen, I would say, in the Bible Belt especially, more people, more churches have divided, not over doctrinal issues, but over issues of personal freedom that really don't matter, and more people have been heard about matters of conscience than anything else. Some of you could even give testimony right now to something that happened to you in a church that was so painful, someone hurt you deeply over an issue, if I can say it this way, really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. So the issue here is meat sacrificed to idols, but the big heading is this, Christian freedom. 
Christian freedom can be defined this way. Behaviors and practices that are not expressly dealt with in Scripture, but are a matter of personal conscience. Now, hear me clearly. We're not talking about an issue like immorality. The Bible's clear. We're not talking an issue about drunkenness. The Bible's clear. We're not talking about the authority of Scripture. The Bible's clear. We're talking about those areas in your daily life and decisions you make all day long that are a matter of personal conscience. See? Let me give you some examples. You're having a dinner party. You invite some people over to your house. You love games. You pull out the the board and you pull out decks of cards and you lay them on the table and you're going to think this is silly but I'm going to use it as an example and two or three couples in the group say hold on we're not comfortable playing cards we're not comfortable with these kind of games and they get up and leave in a huff they're mad at you you're mad at them you think they're silly you think they're weird excited okay let me give you another example you're a new couple and you go to a life group and you you're new to the church and you sit in these life group with these other couples and you have to leave early and you go out and you're walking down the sidewalk and the, the door to the house is, or the window's open and they forget it's open and you hear these couples talking about you and they say, oh, delightful couple. Oh, they're wonderful, but they can never be part of our life group because they don't homeschool. Everybody okay? Everybody all right? Is this practical? On and on and on and on. The illustration, I'll give you another illustration. God's put on your heart to take the gospel to a rough part of our city. And you have to go to some places that are pretty rough. And some people in the church don't quite understand it. And they say, I can't believe they would go to that place. And immediately the conscience starts firing and judgment is made. What a, it's an issue of conscience. So what do we do? How do we handle that? Well, Paul gives us some help here. Behaviors and practices that are not expressly dealt with in Scripture, but are a matter of personal conscience. Listen, if we don't know how to deal with these, the church divides over these things. And the unity of the church is a major deal to God. Meat sacrifice to idols. Go back to verse 4. Let's start there and we'll walk through this text. So Paul again writes the letter. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, because he knew it was a problem. Paul says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol. In other words, it's just a statue in the world. And that there's one God. There's no God but one. Verse 5, he goes and lays down the theological reality. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, Artemis or Athena or Zeus or whoever it was in that day, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's saying that tongue-in-cheek, yet for us there's one God. The Father from whom all things and we exist for Him. There's one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through Him. And Paul lays down that theological reality as if to say, Hey, eating meat that was laid before a statue means nothing. Because there's one God. And when that was read in the church at Corinth... Your meat eaters group over here go, yeah, Paul, get on them. We told them they were silly. Those statues are nothing. And Paul says, hold up there, big boy. Before you take your theological understanding and unnecessarily hurt someone with it, let's read on. Verse 6. Verse 7, however, Paul says, not all men have this knowledge. What does that mean? But some 
being accustomed to the idol until now. Some, those newer believers, they've been understanding and reading the Bible for six months. All they knew prior to that was temple worship and the gods of Greece and the gods of Rome and this pagan system. That's all they knew. He says, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now. That's their background. That's their history. That's how they were brought up in the East Tennessee. That's how they were raised. Right? They eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. You have a good T-bone off the grill. They, their conscience fires and they are burdened because they can't lose the memories of what their life used to be like in paganism. Paul says, and their conscience, there's the word, their conscience being weak is defiled. What do you do with that? Let me give you another illustration. I had this, something similar to this happen to me and it's why it, it makes sense to me, but I'll use another dice card analogy I used to live in Vegas okay so uh, let's say you have some people over at your house and you're just going to play a game with dice now what's this you throw the dice out and say it's a piece of plastic with dots on it what's the big deal the guy says man I don't I don't do that you think what is ridiculous what is wrong with you and he says the reason I don't play dice is because the house I grew up in my daddy was a drunk and a gambler Every week his, he would bring in a paycheck and he would beat my mom and he would take the money and he'd go out and gamble it away. And when I see a pair of dice, that's the only thing I can think of is how I grew up. And you go, oh. There was more there than I realized. See, it's situations like that why Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Listen, Jesus never says don't judge. We make judgments. We make judgments. But don't judge until you get all the facts. So here's these guys, and they're invited over to these dinner parties. They say, we just can't eat that. And all those who are more mature in their faith are tempted to say, that's ridiculous. And it causes this division in the church. And Paul says, time out, man. Not all men have this knowledge. They've not had the benefit you've had of truth. This is all they've ever known. And when they see it, their conscience, bam, begins to fire. And Paul says, their conscience being weak, verse 7. What does that mean? Their conscience being weak. What, what does it mean, weak conscience? Well, first of all, what is the conscience? Very important to understand these are matters of conscience. Your conscience is this, an internal alarm system to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. Watch this, good and bad, wise and unwise, better and best. It's not always clearly right, wrong, good, evil. Sometimes it's good and best, better and best. It's a system with it God's given us a conscience. And your conscience is to help you operate in daily life. To fire when it's supposed to fire. To not fire when it's not supposed to fire. Here's a conscience that was overactive. Paul says it was weak. We make decisions and judgments every day driven by our consciences. So do you. 
man, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that. Or, doesn't bother me, go live it up, man. Or you hear lately, vote your conscience. Whatever that means. Now, the Bible's very clear. It is a dangerous thing for any believer to violate their conscience. You say, well, what if it's a weak conscience? doesn't say that. So here's what Scripture says. Paul says this. I'll just read this to you really quick. Acts 24, 16. Paul, talking about the conscience, says, Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and men. A healthy conscience before God, before men. A clear conscience. Don't violate your conscience. 1 Timothy 1.19 is even more clear. Paul says to Timothy, cling to your faith in Christ. Excuse me. Keep your conscience clear. In other words, don't violate your conscience. For some people have deliberately violated their conscience. And listen to what it says. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Translation, don't violate your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. God's given that beep, beep, beep warning system in your... Don't violate your conscience. But here's a reality. In a church family, in any family, you're going to have believers with varying degrees of healthy and unhealthy consciences. And you're going to have potential conflicts over peripheral issues or matters of conscience. So Paul, help us. What then is a weak conscience? He says one of the issues here is they are looking at this situation from a weak conscience. What does that mean, Paul? Here's the definition. A weak conscience is one that operates on something or from something less than divine truth. Did you get that? In other words, their conscience is going off. They are looking through the lenses of something and making a decision about something on something less than divine truth. Background, upbringing, tradition, experience. None of those things are evil in and of themselves. But a conscience that that's all you have to go on, you will not operate from a strong, healthy conscience. You will merely be operating from something less than divine truth of God's Word. That's why Paul said, look, they've been accustomed to this. They're operating from a weak conscience. Their conscience has not been trained by the Word of God yet. See? Weak conscience. Well, Paul, then help us. Okay, what's a strong conscience? What then is a healthy conscience so that we're able to make right judgments in matters of everyday life? Here's what Scripture says. Two words. Number one, Hebrews 9.14. Listen to what Hebrews 9.14 says. He says, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Translation, here's the first idea about a healthy conscience. It's a purified conscience by the blood of Christ. Meaning, one of the things that happens when we place faith in Jesus Christ, Christ becomes our sin bearer and removes the guilt of sin that our conscience is constantly operating from. So if you, even as a believer, have trusted Christ and you still somehow think you are bearing your own sin, you will operate out of a system of legalism and you will constantly be trying to earn favor with God because your conscience is not operating on truth. Do you hear that? Oh God, I'm weighed down with all these sins. Oh God, I've got to make it up to God. Oh, I've got to get it right. And you will live out of a system of legalism and condemnation because you think you're still bearing your sin. 
in Christ, Hebrews says, he has purified our conscience. We are free from bearing the guilt of our sin. We lay it on Christ. That's a healthy conscience. Secondly, a healthy conscience is a trained conscience. What do you mean by that? 1 Timothy 1.5. Do we have that one? Put that one. There we go. Paul says, but the goal of our instruction. Paul says, I teach, I teach, I hold out the word. We hold out the word of God just like what we do here in our study groups, our life groups. We hold out the word of God. Why? The end game, the goal of our instruction is this, love. You want to know what Christian maturity is? Love. We'll talk about that next week. Christ-like supernatural love flowing from a pure heart and a good conscience. In other words, our conscience grows in health as we train our conscience in truth. Therefore, the question then for you and me in areas of life that are areas not expressly dealt with in Scripture is this. Am I operating out of a weak conscience, background, experience, all I've ever known? Or is my conscience being trained by the Word of God to operate out of divine truth? That is a strong conscience. And by the way, that's what we unify around is truth. We don't unify around background and tradition and history and preference and how you were brought up and how I was brought up. A church will never gather around that and unify around that. Divine truth of God's word. So we see Paul's dealing with something so practical here. The question for you and me is this, am I living out of a pure conscience, resting in Christ and his finished work, his complete forgiveness, or is my conscience operating under the guilt of my own sin? Secondly, is my conscience primarily driven by what's true, word of God, or is my conscience driven by background and preference, opinion, tradition, preference, experience, etc., 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 etc.? Third question. Am I, like what's going on at the church of Corinth, am I condemning others who are free? Am I one of a conscience persuasion that when anyone expresses their freedom and it's an area I'm not comfortable with, even though it's a matter of conscience, my first reaction is, I can't believe they're doing. But you live in that way? Or are you living this way? Am I belittling others who are less trained and mature yet, who are newer in the faith or have not had the training and instruction I've had? Am I looking down on others whose conscience is not quite mature yet? Because if we do those, guess what you have? Major disunity in the church. See? So Paul's dealing with it. So we're dealing with it. So here's the question. All right, so you've got folks with healthy conscience. You've got folks with unhealthy conscience. That's what was going on here. You've got the meat eaters. You've got the non-meat eaters. Man, they're just going at it. Paul writes this letter and he says, okay, here's what you do. How do we live in a church family with varying degrees of maturity, strong and weak consciences? How do we pursue unity when we all have different consciences that are firing on different things in our life? Here's what Paul says, verse 8. He says, but food, back to the meat sacrificed to idols, food will not commend us to God. 
We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Paul says, you know what? Eating meat sacrificed to idols ultimately doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But take care that this liberty of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. There's that word again. He says, take care within a church family that my freedom does not become a cause of stumbling for the weaker brother. Meaning, yes, I have freedom to do that. Yes, I have freedom to not do that. Whatever that is, you fill it in. But if I am aware that my doing this, be careful, is causing a stumbling. It's a beautiful word picture, a stumbling block. It's, a, it's a, an offense. I'm walking along and I trip over it. And it causes me trouble in my walk with the Lord. If I'm aware that something I'm exercising in my own freedom is causing another to stumble, Paul says, hold on. Hold on. You've got to deal with that. So I'm going to give you two phrases. I'll give you two life principles. Here we go. Paul, how do we deal with it? What are we supposed to do? When it comes to areas of personal freedom and conscience, life principle number one is this. Choose love over liberty. Choose love over liberty. What does that mean? Let's see. Paul, help us. Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, meaning you've been taught, you understand what the Bible teaches, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, immature, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Meaning, will he not be tempted to jump over his conscience? And remember, it's never the right thing to jump over your conscience. Paul goes on. He says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, which is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, here's Paul's concluding statement. Therefore, if food, meat sacrificed to idols, causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Wow. You know what Paul says? When it comes to areas of personal freedom that I have every right in the world to do. The Bible doesn't condemn it. I can live it up. I can enjoy it. I'm going to choose love for my brother over liberty. I want to choose love and the good of that brother or that sister over my personal liberty. Now, parentheses. Ready? Here's the parentheses. Differences or causing a brother to stumble is not the same as trying to pander to everyone's opinion. Can't live that way. Well, I better not do this, I better not go there, I better not think this, I better not wear that, because someone somewhere, somewhere might not like it. That's not what Paul is saying. You cannot live that way. Paul is saying, if you have clear understanding and knowledge that your ongoing conduct is causing a brother or sister major trouble in their walk with God, man, lay it aside, go to your brother, explain it, help them, whatever the case is, but you be willing to choose love for a brother and sister for whom Christ died over your own liberty. Why? Because the unity of the church is a big deal to God. See that? Choose love over liberty. There's infinite applications to this. These issues and matters of conscience choose love over liberty. Now, I'm going to do this very quick because our time is short. There's a second principle. I'm going to look at two. That's the first one. 
when it comes to these matters of conscience, I, I, Lord, give me the grace, give me the ability, give me the capacity, that in making my decisions, I'm going I'm to choose love for my brother over my own freedoms. Here's the second one. Choose mission over comfort. Choose mission over comfort. What do you mean? Chapter 9. Stay with me. We're going to do this very quick. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So he's speaking to this church at Corinth. He's saying, listen, I've invested in you. I've poured into you. I've taught you. I've preached there. I spent a year and a half of my life there birthing this church. I've invested there. Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Paul said, listen, how crazy is it for a farmer to invest in a field and then not be able to eat the food of the field, fruit of the field? Then Paul, what are you talking about? I don't get it. Verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it not too much? Or is it too much that we reap material things from you? Paul said, listen. All of my ministry at Corinth, all the time I was there, I invested my life and I didn't take a dime from you. Was it wrong for Paul to take money? No. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Take people who invest in you. We believe in that. Paul says, but listen, I know what had happened there. I know the background. I know all the charlatans that had come in. I know all the false teachers. I know the next guy that comes in, the next traveling preacher who offered this and then took all your money and left. He said, I wanted you to know that the gospel I was preaching was true and pure and right and my motives were true and pure and right. So to remove any stumbling block from you hearing the message of Jesus, I didn't take a dime from you. Are you sure that's what he meant? Verse 12. If others share that right over you, do we not more? In other words, you gave, people, you gave other guys that came through money. What about, nevertheless, we do not use this right. Listen, in a world of claiming our personal rights, Paul said, I will lay down my personal rights. Why? But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance, no stumbling block to the gospel of Christ. Wow. Did you love that? Paul had every right under God. He had scriptural mandate even to collect. And Paul said, listen, because I want you to know, I want our gospel to be unadulterated. I want the ministry to flourish. I'm not going to take a dime from you. Areas of personal freedom, areas of conscience. Second question is this, or second principle is this. Choose mission over comfort. There will be times... And maybe I could ask you, have there been times, are there times now where in order for you to reach so-and-so or to get the message to this person or this place, it will demand you lay aside a privilege or you lay aside a comfort. The Bible is full and full and overflowing of examples of men and women who are willing to say, I will lay aside my rights, my privileges, my comforts as a matter of conscience, whatever it is, so that nothing, will hinder my ability to share the message of Jesus. Listen, we had some examples of that this morning on stage. Men and women who have every right to live in America and all the, all the good that America offers, they said, listen, I'm going to lay that aside. Lay aside those privileges so I can go to a tough place, the continent of Africa, so people can hear about Jesus. 
How about this one? When Paul, Acts 16, got Timothy, his young apprentice, we just read about Timothy, and said, hey, Timothy, you're going to go with me, and we're going to go preach the gospel. He knew Timothy's dad was a Gentile. Timothy was a young man. Timothy was up in his 20s or 30s and said, hey, Timothy, you're going to go with me. Guess what? you got to be circumcised first. How about that for laying down your rights? Now, you want to go on a short-term mission trip? All right. Passport? Physical? Circumcised. I think I'll pass. What's the point? Your Bible is full of God honoring the ministry of men and women and at times often, often saying, I've got to lay down comforts and lay down privileges and lay down rights for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul did. Listen, as a church, I want us to thrive. I want us to flourish. We will not thrive. We will not flourish. We will not be able to carry out the mission God has given us if we are a disunified body. And we will not be unified if we split over things that are a matter of conscience. Hey, listen, I'll die on the authority of Scripture. I'll die on the sufficiency of Christ. I'm not dying on homeschool or not homeschool. Or pick, pick, pick one. Choose love over liberty. Secondly, choose mission over my own comfort. I want us to thrive. I want us to carry the gospel out. It's going to involve loving like we've never loved before. And it's going to involve us, listen, in a world that is becoming decreasingly and decreasingly and decreasingly Christian. You understand the idea that ours is a Christian culture, whatever the heck that means, that's not the case anymore. You are lights in darkness, and it is beginning to cost you more and more and more to be a believer. The church is experiencing a purging that is a good thing. No more will believers in America, and this is becoming more and more, just be able to stand up and say, sure, I signed the card, walked the aisle, got dunked, I'm a Christian. Well, how about this? What if it costs you your job? You still name in the name of Christ? If you've truly been born again, you, have, you will. If you hadn't, done with that man. The cost is too great. Choose the mission over your comforts. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Now listen, final thing and I'm done. <laughs> Why in the world? Why in the world would a believer, us, why would we ever Choose love over liberty. Why in the world would we ever lay down a comfort, a privilege, so that we may take the gospel to someone? Is there any model or example in Scripture to help us? Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think this way. Who, although he existed in the form of God, 
Jesus Christ, eternal God, forever God, all the privileges of being God, all the perfections of living in the presence of God in the Trinity. Jesus himself, the Bible says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Translation, he chose love. And he laid down, never laid down being God, never laid down his identity, but he laid down all the privileges of being God and came and was born in a cow trough in Bethlehem. So listen, if you're ever tempted to say, well, you know what, I, this is just too, too great of a price to pay. I mean, I know that neighbor's important, but I got stuff to do. There's just things going on. Listen, you will never be asked to lay down anything greater than what Jesus Christ has already laid down for you. Ever. And you know how you and I have the capacity to live supernaturally in a world that's going to hell and falling apart? Here's the answer. Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You pray with me this morning. Ask our team to come on up and begin to play. We're going to stand and sing in just a second. I want you to do business with God right there in your seat. I want you to wrestle with some of these things before God. Right there before God in your seat, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I making decisions and seeing people through a weak conscience laden with sin? Or is my conscience trained on the truth of God's word? Are you exercising your freedom in Christ by choosing love over liberty? Are there situations in your life right now, I need to choose love for my brother over my own personal freedom? Is there a sacrifice required of you in order to reach someone with the gospel? Is there something right now you are willing to give up? Something you're willing to say no or say yes or willing to sacrifice that you're unwilling and that's keeping you from reaching that neighbor or crossing that street or listen, crossing that ocean to carry out the call of God on your life. Pray you do business with God this morning. Final question, if you're here right now and you you have never had your conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus. This morning you can know him. Jesus has died. Jesus died to be your sin bearer and mine. Jesus rose from the dead to show us that he was God. And he offers to us complete forgiveness, complete salvation, complete transformation from the inside out. How do you respond? Here's how you respond. Believe. 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 Will you believe in Christ today? Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this truth. God, do business in our hearts, Lord. Call us to action. Call us to humility. Call us to lay aside our rights, our privileges for the sake of love, the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.